You know, you can learn a lot from people when you watch what they do with a marshmallow on a stick in front of a fire. Are you the kind of person to skip the fire altogether and pop that sugary morsel into your mouth? Maybe you're the kind of person that needs to make sure that the sugar meets the fire. Are you the kind of person then that quickly sticks the marshmallow in the flame so that it uh, catches on fire? You, you blow it out and then you pop it in your mouth quickly? Or are you the kind of person who would rather have your marshmallow brown than black? However, um, being a little impatient, you're going to find the hottest coal you can and put that marshmallow right next to the coal so that the top of it gets brown, but the rest of it stays white long enough so that you can pop it in your mouth. Or are you the kind of person who would rather take the time and make your marshmallow go like a rotisserie, a rotisserie, and you, 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 you brown the entire marshmallow, very careful to not let it burn. Oh, this takes time and patience and discipline because this nice, thoroughly brown, caramelized marshmallow on the edge of that stick is causing your mouth to water. Are you that kind of a person that will patiently allow the process to take place and then enjoy it? I could ask the question, I suppose, in another way. Are you the kind of person who seeks a quick fix to a problem or a need? Or are you the kind of person um, that will be patient and long-suffering and allow the process to work itself out to find that solution or to meet that need? We live in a microwaved, quick-fix culture. We have instant coffee, instant rice, instant pudding, instant oil changes, instant cash, instant messaging, messaging. We chase after fast food, fast fashion, fast weight loss, fast internet, fast profit. Get-rich-quick schemes have always been with us. But it seems like over the last couple of generations, because of the technology that we enjoy, that has simply been ratcheted up, and we want everything immediately. And the idea of self-discipline has long left us. The first century disciples in Jesus' day were tripped up, hunting for quick fixes, easy solutions to the problems and the pressures that they faced, particularly at that fateful moment when Jesus told them, I'm leaving. 
That was a scary time for the disciples. They had left friends, family, their homes, their livelihood. Was it all a waste? Were we fools to follow Jesus? Because now he's going away. No, they weren't fools at all. Jesus informed his men at that Last Supper that there was one in their midst who was going to stab him in the back. Only only the Apostle John had first-hand information that it was Judas, the man from Kiriath. But all the other disciples probably wondered when Judas abruptly got up in the middle of their supper and left. Well, where's, where's he going? He was going to get the betrayal operative. And Jesus leaving them. What were they going to do? Was somebody else going to defect? Jesus said, Peter, you're going to betray me three times this very night. How were they going to sustain? How were they going to hang together as a, as a band of brothers? It's into this kind of whirlwind that Jesus speaks to his beloved men and he encourages their hearts. And in John chapter 14, he says this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. Now that's a great standalone evangelism verse. Use it that way. I certainly have. But Jesus includes it for these men to reassure them, no, all that we have done is not a waste. You are not fools. This has a purpose. There is a plan behind all of it. I am your one and only way to the Father, to salvation. You can only get to heaven through me. I've got this all under control, gentlemen. Well, it's in this situation, in the midst of this whirlwind, that Jesus continues to encourage and strengthen his disciples. Our text this morning is from John chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. I invite you to follow along with me. John 14, verse 7. Jesus is speaking, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I 
Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father... But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their discouragement, in the midst of all of the questions swirling around in their mind, Jesus assures his men, comforts his men, redirects his men. Specifically here in this text, he leaves them with two very key promises. It's not the only promise. We'll talk about the coming of the Spirit next week, Lord willing. Here are these two promises. They are my main points. Jesus' promise of greater works and Jesus' promise of answered prayer. Now, verse 7, which begins our text, sticks out like a sore thumb, like, um, like, a, um, um, like a fur coat vendor would in the August Arizona desert. It's like, this doesn't fit. Jesus spoke the words in verse 7 that we're going to look at in just a moment. Because he omnisciently knew what was in Philip's mind as recorded in verse 8. Look at that verse first. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. He's looking for a silver bullet. He's looking for a quick, quick and easy answer. He's looking for something microwaved. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Uh, This is what we might refer to in Latin as the visio dei, which translated means the vision of God. It was uh, the highest honor, uh, the greatest pleasure, that which which the Jews sought after um, most earnestly, to see the presence of Almighty God. Remember when Moses was up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, he said, I pray thee, Lord, let me see thy face. Moses wanted to see God. He wanted a visio day. So Peter says, Lord, we, we want to see the Father. 
Now, I, I think this is what was going on in Philip's mind. He's confused. He is disoriented. He's not sure exactly what to think or what to feel. He knows that Jesus is leaving. That's point number one. Point number two, he knows that the rest of his band of brothers are similarly lost, confused, discombobulated. They don't know what's up and what's not up. Their whole world has been turned upside down. A, because of Judas leaving so abruptly now, and Jesus talking about being stabbed in the back, and Jesus then reaffirms that he's taking off, he's leaving them. Now, now point number three in in Philip's mind, I think, I I realize I'm going beyond the confines of of the the scriptures, but I don't think I'm too far off the mark. Third third point, um, in Philip's mind, he realizes Jesus and the Father are pretty tight. Pretty tight. Jesus talks about the Father all the time. So I think this is his conclusion. Okay, Jesus, we know you have to leave. You know how kind of messed up we are inside, how uncertain we are of oh so many things. Because of your relationship with the Father, Jesus, tell you what, how about if you... If you have to leave, how about if you send the Father to us and you, you, you two trade places? And, 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 and that way the Father's with us even if you have to leave. Is that okay? Jesus says, well, Jesus had already said to, to, to Philip in verse 7, knowing where this, was, where this conversation was going. If you had known me, Jesus says, verse 7, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. What Jesus is driving at is that there is a distinction, to be sure, between the Father and the Son. They are two different personalities but they are of the same essence, the same stuff. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. John chapter 1 verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus' point is, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You're asking to see the Father. Philip, look here, buddy, right here. You're seeing the Father right now. Nobody can see the Father physically because the Father doesn't have a physical being. Every time there is a mention in the Old Testament of any kind of sighting of the Lord, 
It's always the pre-incarnate Christ. It's never the Father. Philip, if you had known me, if you really know me like you ought to know me by now, you've been with me for three years, Philip. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him. You have seen him. Oh, but Lord, show us the Father. That's going to be enough for us. We'll, 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 we'll be satisfied. Verse, verse, um, verse 9 is a, is a gentle rebuke of Philip. Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. What Jesus does, the Father does. Now, it's it's easy for for some to to conclude because there is such a close tight intimacy between the father and the and the, and the son if jesus says this scriptures affirm this is something that the father gave him to say um, it's, it's easy to assume that Jesus was, was, was but a, uh, a, a biological playback machine from the Father, as if he was a mere messenger or if he was a mere prophet declaring, thus says the Lord. No, there is, there is such an integral unity between the Father and the Son. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. The words that Jesus speaks come from the Father, but they are originating in Jesus Wow. Try to wrap your mind around that truth. In John chapter 12, verse 45, Jesus says, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. You see Jesus, you have seen the Father. You hear Jesus, you have heard the Father. You see Jesus' work. You have seen the Father work. They are distinct, yes, but they are of the same stuff. They are of the same essence. There is an integral unity. Father is in the Son. Son is in the Father. Put these quotations in your notes. You can, you can look them up later. Just, just listen. 
John chapter 7, Jesus answered them, said, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Chapter 8, The things which I heard from the Father, these I speak to the world. Chapter 12, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Yet, the words that come from the lips of Jesus are his words. He's not a mere messenger. Now, what, um, what, what, we, what we have here is, is uh, the, the beginnings of a Trinitarian lecture that Philip is soon going to experience. He's, he's going to be tutored by the Holy Spirit in these matters regarding the nature of the Father and the Son. It's the Father who delivers the Son up to death. It is the Son who offers His life as an atoning sacrifice. It is the Father who not only puts Jesus to death, but raises Him back to life. It is the Son who gives Himself up to death, and raises himself back up to life. It is the Son who ascends. It is the Father who coronates and bequeaths on him the name which is above every name, the name Lord. It is the Father who sends the Holy Spirit. It is the Son who simultaneously sends the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell, comes to baptize, comes to teach. Now all of this stuff about the the nature of the Trinity is is something that is uh, throughout the pages of Scripture, but it's going to take the New Testament authors and the, the working of the Holy Spirit to put all of these pieces together into some kind of systematic whole. Now at this point, we're we're, we're swimming at the deep end of the pool, and the disciples are not ready to be there. Jesus backs up. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. All of the stuff that I just said regarding the nature of of the Trinity. Believe all of this. Believe this propositional truth. Otherwise, middle of verse 11, believe because of the works themselves. Every miraculous deed that Jesus performed was a declaration of who he was, who he is, as the Lord. God Almighty, God incarnate. If you have a hard time believing the prepositional truth that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, believe the works. Let's start in the shallow end of the pool. Believe this. And they saw Jesus making water, making wine out of water, feeding 5,000, healing. Uh, a man born blind, raising the dead. They saw these things. 
Believe for the works themselves that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Now, second page of your notes. We get to verse 12. This is a difficult verse. I, I, I continue to struggle to understand this verse. Let's read it again and tear it apart. It has three parts that we're going to consider. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, guys, take out your, your notebooks, your pen and paper. This is important. You need, to, you need to wrap your mind around this. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Okay, he's, he's speaking to genuine believers, those who have repented of sin, those who have put their trust, their confidence in Christ. And these men sitting around that table, having finished their last supper together, they are believers. They are loyal to Christ, spiritually and theologically naive. Uh, uh, that's, that's, that's true. Jesus gives them these comforting truths. I am going to be leaving you, but that's not the end of the matter. I'm not done. I'm still working. I'm still accomplishing the mission given to me by the Father. The works that I do, this believing one, these believing ones, will also do these works. That's point number one. Point number two, he will do greater works than these. Oh, what is that all about? Third, because Jesus goes to the Father. All right, these, these who believe, these are genuinely saved people. These who believe, they see the works that Jesus has done. And we read about them even now. Jesus says that these who believe him will do these works. The works that I do, he will do also. Now, there's no way, given the context, that we can say the works that Jesus does are like him tying his sandals or him sawing a piece of wood in his carpentry shop. Jesus is not saying that you're going to do these kind of simple, earthly perfunctory deeds like I do, like tying your shoes and cutting a piece of wood. No. Given the context, there's no way we can say that this stands for anything other than supernatural work. He has just told the men in verse 11, believe me because of the works themselves. 
water to wine, feeding 5,000, healing the blind, raising the dead. Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty ominous. But now it gets super crazy ominous. Point number two, Jesus says, greater works than these he will do. Speaking of the believing ones, greater works. What in the world does that mean? We have three interpretive possibilities, at least. Qualitatively, Jesus may be saying, believing ones will do greater works than, um, than the kinds that I've, I've already mentioned. That would mean that we expect believers to do works that are more stupendous, more amazing, more awe-producing than remotely turning water into wine, than feeding 5,000 men plus their families with five small dinner rolls and two sardines. It would mean doing something more stupendous than healing someone born blind. It would mean something more amazing and astonishing than raising somebody who had been dead and buried for four days. That's one option. I'm not seeing that to be too compelling. All right, if we're not talking about a qualitative greater work, what about if we're talking about a quantitative greater work? That is, we're still talking about supernatural acts. We're still talking about turning water to wine, feeding 5,000, healing the blind, raising the dead. We're still talking about something absolutely astonishing, but rather than just a few of these kinds of signs, we're talking about a whole bunch of them because there are a whole bunch of us and only one Jesus. Is it possible that when Jesus says, the believing ones are going to do greater works than these, is it possible that he is saying, no, you're not going to do something more stupendous than raising the dead, for example, but you're going to do that kind of a work many times over. It's going to be a greater number of these kinds of deeds. Now, charismatics will, will glom on to this interpretive possibility and say, yep, that's it. Particularly faith healers. They love this verse. They love this kind of an understanding of this verse. Yes, we're going to do greater works, and watch me work. Um, as I look through uh, the pages of Scripture, as I read church history through the ages, I don't find that this is the experience of believers. How many of you have been 
a participant in raising somebody from death who has been buried for four days. Any hands? Yeah. Well, there's another interpretive possibility um, that is much more compelling. And it's this. Let's move out of the realm of the physical and let's move these greater works into the realm of the spiritual. In a word, we're talking about maybe a miraculous deed that is far greater than raising somebody from the dead who's been in the ground for four days. And that is the miracle of conversion. Being a participant in seeing someone who is spiritually dead come to life. Now the aspect of qualitative greatness and quantitative greatness both fit here in this sense. From a human point of view, we're thinking about conversion. We're thinking about someone coming to spiritual life. Now, from, uh, from, from uh, Jesus speaking, we can easily see how, how someone would instantly come to life at his beck, at his, uh, at his call. But what about us humans being involved? I don't know about you, but I, I, I sometimes walk away from a time when I have witnessed to somebody, evangelized somebody, I, I, I proclaim the gospel to somebody, and I, and I whack myself in the head saying, well, I forgot to say this. Or, no, I, I was so... I, I, don't, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I didn't even answer the question. I, I guess I was... I don't, know what, I don't know what I was doing. We sometimes are uh, uh, um, an inconsistent messenger of the Lord. So, so we're talking about something qualitatively greater in that Jesus is using something, namely me, his people, his followers, his disciples. He, he's using those people that are um, far less than he, far less capable, far less knowledgeable than he, far, far, far less more sensitive to the, to the needs of that individual. Uh, we mess up simply de- declaring the, the gospel in its clear s- simplicity. Jesus died for sinners. How can we mess that up? And yet we do. So qualitatively, it's greater, from a human point of view, that, that Jesus would use us. Given our flaws and given our stumbling with, with, with words. And, and quantitatively, it's greater in that Jesus isn't the only one evangelizing. He's had uh, m- many people throughout many generations. You know, you know Jesus limited his ministry to just a small portion of Palestine, and that for only a few years. But here he has had his people, his disciples, 
evangelizing um, around the globe for many centuries. I think that's a better understanding of this greater works that Jesus promises us. And, and then he says at the end of verse 12, um, he, he's making this promise to us of, of greater works because I go to the Father. There is, there is a necessity here. He has to do this. Now, for the believers, the disciples, the 11 that are there, they're, they're thinking that their world is falling apart because Jesus is leaving them. And he says, no, 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 no. I am still on task. I am still about my mission. What's his mission? Jesus had been handed the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. He knows all of the names that are there. These are the individuals given to him by the Father. It is for this group of people that he came in to die. He came seeking them, to save them, which were lost. He accomplished that on the cross. But that was not the end of his mission. The end of his mission is to present all of these people down through the ages that include even our generation. He was, his, his mission included presenting all of these unto the Father to say, here's the whole package. You gave me this responsibility to save these people. I have done so. Here they are. Jesus says, um, you're going to do greater works because I'm going to the Father, and in so doing, I am sending you the Holy Spirit, and he is going to accomplish through you, throughout all of the generations, the remainder of my mission, and it will all be done. Not one will be missing. Amen and amen. And he said this in order to bring strength and encouragement to his men. Point number two. Jesus' promise of answered prayer. Look at verse 13. A greatly maligned and abused pair of verses these are. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now for a lot of people, prayer is a, is a honey-do list. It's a, God, would you, would you take care of this, take care of that? Oh, and, and don't forget this, please. Um, and, oh, and take care of this too. And we take it to the Lord. We leave it there. And we read verses like this, and we conclude, well, I've, I've prayed this in Jesus' name. 
And, and, I, and, 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 and how many times do you hear people pray, or rather end their prayer, with the tagline, in Jesus' name? What does that mean? Why do you say it? Should you say it at all? You know one of my pet peeves? I'm preaching so I can, I can talk. You have to listen. <clears throat> one of my pet peeves is, is to hear the phrase, prayer changes things. I don't use that phrase. I heard it this week from an unbeliever um, who asked me to pray for them for a difficult situation, which I did. Um, I, 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 don't, um, I, don't, I don't fault unbelievers uh, when they say things like this because they've just heard it and they think, well, that, 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 that kind of uh, has, has a ring of truth to it, so I'll, I'll, I'll say it myself. I don't use that phrase. Um, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to that phrase, but if I were to use that phrase, I would require that you give me a paragraph and maybe two. I would require that you give me five minutes and maybe seven in order to explain what it means and what it doesn't mean vis-a-vis the Scriptures. Prayer changes things. Well, prayer um, is, is, is not some kind of magic, um, magic statement. Just like the phrase... In my name is 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 not a, uh, uh, a a lucky rabbit's foot. You tie it on to your prayer, and it's going to happen. You have obligated God to fulfill your honey-do list because you said, "In Jesus' name," as you concluded your prayer. What does that mean? In Jesus' name. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's not even something you have to say. Is it wrong for you to say it? No, if you understand what it means. Before we get there, let me, let me, let me um, point out one, one, one more phrase that that's in the same that's in the same vein. We use it as a we use it as a um, uh, another lucky rabbit's foot. Matthew chapter eighteen, familiar passage of scripture. Jesus is speaking. He says, "If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven." And there's some people who will take that, that verse at face value and say, okay, we just have to have two people. We get together. We have our, our, our honey-do list. We, we pray these petitions unto God. We, we ask Him to do this. We ask Him to do, do that. We agree together. And therefore, Scripture says, if we agree, it shall be Done. 
Isn't that what it says? So all we have to do is have two people together. We have to agree in prayer. We have to conclude our prayer in Jesus' name, and it's, it's a lock. Take it to the bank. It's, 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 like, it's, like, it's like gold. I mean, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. And our prayer is going to change things. My friends, there is no magic formula. There is no lucky rabbit's foot, even a spiritual lucky rabbit's foot. There is nothing we can do, we can say, to obligate God. We might even, uh, we might even sit back in our chair after praying with someone else in agreement Ending our prayer in Jesus' name, of course. We might even grab a glass of iced tea, sit back in the hammock, and, and quote with David, Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't Jesus the one who taught us to pray, My will be done. My kingdom come. <laughs> That's how we pray sometimes. No. No magic formula here. In all three contexts, um, Matthew 18, Psalm 37, uh, John 14, all three contexts, we are not praying, my kingdom come. We are praying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I am seeking God's honor, God's glory, not my to-do list. Here's your cross-reference. This is the verse from, also from John's pen that sets all of this in its proper context and gives us understanding of what it means when Jesus says, pray in my name. Here it is. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which he, we have asked from him. He's going to ask, answer our prayers. When we pray according to his will. That's what it means when I pray in Jesus' name. That's what it means when I am praying in agreement with another brother or sister in Christ. I am praying in accordance with His will. God is going to delight to give me the desires of my heart when my heart is His heart. When my will is His will. When I earnestly desire to, and, and I pray, not my will be done, but Thine be done. Your will be done on earth 
just as it is in heaven. Jesus promises his followers something absolutely amazing and astonishing. You pray according to my will, in my name, and I will do that. (laughs) He he says to his men, guys, I am leaving you. That's right. And I'm I'm sorry for uh, the the, the pain, the confusion, the disappointment, uh, all of that. But it is for the best. It is for the kingdom that I go. But the fact that I am going doesn't mean that I'm taking my hand off the wheel. I will still be working to accomplish all that I have come to accomplish. And you are going to be participants with me in this. You are going to do things greater than I have done. Both in quality and in quantity, namely in the saving of souls, because you are going to be participants with me. You're going to be the front runners proclaiming my gospel message. And not only that, but in other matters regarding the kingdom. As you pray according to my will, that I will do. Are there times when you pray things that are not according to God's will? Just two nods of the heads? Sure, that happens all the time. It happens all the time. Uh, I, 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 I pray for, for life for one who is, is sick, or I pray for God's provision over here, and God has something else in mind. Happens all the time. Does that mean that these verses don't uh, apply or God broke his promise in some way? No, no. When I pray, I don't always know what God's will is in a particular situation. I, 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 am, I am limited in my knowledge, in my my understanding of God's will, His ways, His timing. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't pray those things. I just pray with a sense of dependency upon Him, wanting His will, His way, His timing, because I know that's best. And so, in everything, as I pray, I am speaking words dependently upon the Lord. Lord, I want, I want what you want. From my perspective, I think this is the best plan. I, I, I think you would be best honored by healing Aunt Susan. But you may have other things in mind. And to that I bow. I submit to that. I'm not here to, to demand anything. But I want to be a part of your kingdom work. If, if it is not your will to bring healing and strength to my dear Aunt Susan, give me insight on how I can help her, strengthen her, embolden her, grow her faith, 
help me help her. I want to be part of kingdom work. That is not only how the Father is glorified, but it is how the Son is glorified as he seeks to glorify the Father as well. It requires that we do the heavy lifting. Or to use another example, it requires that we sit with a marshmallow on the stick for some time, turning it gently, because we want the best. Let's pray. Our blessed and most holy God, how I thank you for preserving us for this time and giving us the opportunity to look into your word, encourage our hearts, and allow us to see your Spirit's plan in action. It is your glory that we seek, your will that we desire your strength flowing through us to the people around us. Grow our love for you. Grow our love for one another. In the blessed name, will, and honor of the Father. Amen.